0: Thanks, brother. All right, let's go ahead and pull out our Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're still in John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it. When we think about stories, we tend to think about the basic three-part structure of a story. We think about beginning, middle, and end. But some stories actually have two beginnings. The first beginning of a story is often referred to as the prologue. A prologue can serve many purposes. It can set the scene for the rest of the story you know, giving you all the relevant background information necessary for you to enter into the story without having to figure out all the facts along the way. It can also introduce the themes that you're going to find recurring throughout the story as you read, or listen, or observe. So, consider, for example, uh, the prologue to Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Once upon a time in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. But then one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away, but she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found Within. And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his heart. And as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived there. Ashamed of his Monstrous form, the beast concealed himself inside his castle with a magic mirror as his only window to the outside world. The rose she had offered him was truly an enchanted rose which would not bloom until his 21st year. If he could learn to love another and earn her love in return by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. As the years passed, he fell into despair and lost all hope, for who could ever learn to love a beast? This prologue sets the stage. It gives all the relevant facts. It prepares the the reader, the listener, the watcher, the moviegoer to enter into the fairy tale completely without having to play catch up along the way. Now, for the more highbrow among us, less interested in Walt Disney, more more interested in the likes of William Shakespeare, we can also consider the Shakespearean tragedy, the much shorter, more condensed prologue. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove is now the two hours' traffic of our stage, the which, if you with patient ears attend, What here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Now, whether you understand Shakespeare in English or not, in less than a minute, Shakespeare gives the audience a snapshot of the rest of the play. The Capulets and the Montagues will shed blood in fair Verona, and in the end, two star-crossed lovers will lose their lives. Now, you'll notice here that Shakespeare told us in the third to the last line How long the play is supposed to last? Two hours. His 30-second prologue paves the way, clears all the debris for the next two hours of the play. Now, a few thousand years before Disney Animation Studios produced Beauty and the Beast, and well before some guy named Bill Shakespeare wrote the first angsty teenage drama, there was a man named John, and he was the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. And in his spare time, he wrote a gospel, an account of the life of Jesus. And this gospel account includes a prologue. It's the first 18 verses of the first chapter of the book. And in these first 18 verses, John prepares us for the next 21 chapters where where we will explore the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the last four verses of the prologue, are what we're going to be in this morning, John 14 through 18. And in these four verses, John gives us three themes that will, con- will recur throughout the rest of the gospel. Here they are. It's Jesus as the revealer of God, the theme of grace and truth, and the theme of the deity of Christ. Now, Those may sound like the three points of this morning's sermon. They are not. I'm not going to give you points in this morning's sermon, and I'm going to tell you why. I want us to use this last sermon in John's prologue to help you practice the art of recognizing themes in the text, even when they're not explicitly pointed out to you. You know, wouldn't it be great if John would have given us a gospel that was color-coded? You know, every time the deity of Christ popped up, it was... In blue, and so you could always, you know, it's like John wrote it with a a pen in one hand and a highlighter in the other. And, you know, anytime John says something about how Jesus reveals the Father, that was highlighted in pink. And we could just go through the whole gospel and see all those themes and how they're interrelated. That would be great. But he didn't do that. And so as you read the gospel, you need to be able to recognize these themes that are coming up over and over again. And we're going to spend our sermon, our last sermon in the prologue, practicing doing that. So pay attention to these themes in this morning's text. For now, let me pray, and then we will jump into the text itself. Lord God, there are no words. We are overwhelmed by your grace. We are taken aback by your love. Father, we need you this morning. Our hearts are so easily distracted, so quickly discouraged. We, we, we could just be so easily not focusing on you this morning, God. Even as we sit and listen to a sermon about your word, we could be thinking about 10,000 other things. God, we need you to zero us back in, draw our minds and our hearts back to Jesus, Flame our affections for him even now. Help us to be good listeners. Help us to be faithful stewards of this word that we are about to receive from you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, in our last sermon on John chapter 1, verse 14, we talked about a couple of things. We talked about Jesus being the eternal word and how the word became flesh. And we said that how in the incarnation, Jesus tabernacled among us. And we said that. This image of the tabernacle shows us the heart of God as as God moves towards sinners in their sin, not away from them in disgust. We also saw how for those who believe, to see Jesus is to have a uniquely potent vision of the glory of God. But there's one thing that we didn't talk about last week in verse 14. And I wonder if if you guys noticed. I wonder if some of you thought about asking me about it, but just didn't didn't bring it up. You thought, ah, he's got a lot on his mind. Or it was such a rich sermon, we couldn't mention everything in the text. But if you go back to John chapter 1 and verse 14, you'll see that there's a phrase we didn't touch on last week. It's in the second half. And just starting right there in the middle of the verse. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. And here's the phrase we didn't touch on: full of grace and truth. We didn't talk about that last week. We're going to talk about that this week. And in order to understand what he means here, let's read 14 through 18 and let's get the context. Okay, so I'll read aloud, you follow along in your Bibles, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Uh, pause, little parenthetical note here. On a parenthetical note, we talked about John a little bit last week. We're going to talk him about, about him a little bit more next week. Not going to address 15 very much in this morning's sermon. On to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? So let's... Let's zero in on that last little piece of verse 14, that the glory of Christ is full of grace and truth. That's what we're going to be thinking about for the majority of the sermon. So here's the main question that I want us to answer during our time here together. What does it mean that the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, what does it mean that the glory of Jesus is full of grace and truth? Now, to answer that question, we actually need to move out of the book of John, and we need to go to an earlier chapter in the story of salvation. We need to actually go back to the scripture that our sister Allison Miller read for us together this morning. So let's, let's turn together back to Exodus chapter 33. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, Uh, 33 is the chapter, that's the number right after the name of the book, and then the verses are the the little numbers in your Bible. Chapter number, the big numbers, verses, the little numbers. Now, here in Exodus 33, Moses asks Yahweh to be gracious to him and to reveal his glory. You can see that starting in verse 18. Go to chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make, and the he here is uh, God, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. And that's Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So here we see Moses coming to God, saying, hey, show me your glory. Reveal your glory. Show me who you are. I want to see you in all of your fullness and all of your brilliance and all of your majesty. Reveal yourself to me. Moses, obviously, didn't know what he was asking of God. He didn't understand that he, as a sinner, were he to come into contact with a holy and righteous God in the fullness of his glory, would disintegrate, right? He would be utterly destroyed. But God knows, and so God told him. He said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, does God have a face? N- no. God is spirit. So, what's happening here? Well, here we see the idea that the face of God represents the fullness of God's glory. God doesn't have a face. He's using accommodating language. He's trying to help us understand Himself in a way that we can understand. So he says, hey, you know, I have a face and I have a back and the face represents the fullness of the glory that you want to see that I'm not going to let you see so that you won't be destroyed. But God has a compromise. Look at verse 22. He says, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, obviously God doesn't have a hand either, right? He doesn't have a back. So what is he saying here? He's saying that he will allow Moses to perceive a hint, a a sliver, a, a faint glimmer of his glory. If the face of God represents the fullness of his glory, then his back represents just a faint image of his glory. He says, that's what I'll show you. And then this finally happens in chapter 34, verse 6. You can just flip over one page. God peels back the curtain ever so slightly. He allows a sliver of the light of his glory to pass in front of Moses, and we read it very anticlimactically, and he passed in front of Moses. But then as you continue to read, uh, I want you to really lock in here, okay? Pay special close attention to the way that the revelation of God's glory is described and depicted in this passage. Listen carefully. The Lord passed before him. Sorry, this is uh, starting in verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord... In this, in this sliver of revelation of God's glory, what we see as God pulls back the curtain to reveal himself to Moses, what we see is an act of grace and truth. Let's focus on the grace for a minute. You can see that back in chapter 33. When, when Moses first goes to God and he says, hey, can you reveal your glory to me? And God goes, eh, I can do something like that for you. God offers a rationale to Moses. He says, yeah, I can do that. Let me tell you why I'm going to do that. And then he explains. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So in the mind of God, his willingness to reveal the truth about himself to Moses is an act of grace. It's something that Moses does not deserve it's something that he has in no way earned. It's something that is so undeserved of Moses that God almost feels like he has to offer a rationale for it. Why am I going to do this for you, even though you don't deserve it? Because I choose to dispense grace to whomever I please. So I will graciously reveal myself to you. So let's, let's put the pieces together here. The revelation... Of God's glory to Moses is fundamentally an act of truth-telling. God says, I want to see your glory. Excuse me, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, and then tells him truth. He proclaims himself. He says, this is who I am, the Lord, Yahweh. That's my identity. This is what I'm like. And then he goes on and explains what he is like. So this language of God's glory passing in front of Moses, it is less about what Moses sees with his eyes and more about what he learns concerning the nature of God. Do you guys see that? If God were to come here in this room today and Grant and me were to stand up as the elders of the church and say, Lord, we, we love you, we praise you, we want you to reveal your glory to us. And God would say, Oh, I can't do that. You know, it would destroy you. But here's what I'll do I'll give you just a, a glimmer of, uh, of it. You know, I'll put everybody on this side of the room and I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by on that side of the room. When we think about that moment, we think what we would most immediately be struck by is like the brilliance of, of the light of the glory. But that's not what stood out most to Moses. What stood out most to Moses was God's revelation of his nature and character. What might stand out most to you if that were to happen in this room is that as God's glory passed by you, you would understand God more than you did before. And then, of course, this act of revelation, as we've already said, is an act of grace. So the content of the revelation of God's glory is truth. The act of the revelation of God's glory is grace. Now let's go back to John's gospel. What does it mean in John chapter 1, verse 14, when John says that the glory of Jesus is full of grace and truth? Well, it means exactly what we see here in Exodus, It means that when God reveals his glory, it's fundamentally an act of grace and truth. But there is one difference between Exodus 33 and John chapter 1, and it's a pretty big difference. In Jesus, in the glory of Jesus, the glory of God is no longer a sliver of light barely passing through a crack under a door. This morning I went to go to the bathroom and the lights were kind of all off in the church and uh, it was, I was one of the first people here and as I was walking up, I saw that like, the light was on. How did I see that the light was on? Well, I could just barely see it under the crack of the men's restroom. That's kind of what it was like to perceive the glory of God there on the mountain with Moses as he received the law. That's not what it's like to perceive the glory of Jesus. In Jesus the glory of God that we can perceive in his person is no longer God showing us his back and covering our eyes with his hand. In Jesus, God is showing us his face. In Jesus, the fullness of the radiance of of the glory of God is bursting forth into the entire universe. No one has ever seen God. That's what we read back if we go back to John chapter 1. We go back, we see that in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Why? Well, you see God, you die. You're a sinner. He's holy. His glory will literally destroy you like an ice cube coming into contact with the sun did Moses see God? Not really. Not really. If God were to fully reveal himself to Moses, Moses would have been gone. But in Jesus, God has made himself fully known to us. Listen to the way that Paul talks about this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And I'm not going to explain this verse. I'm just going to read it. I want to point out to you before I read it that this is not John writing like, Oh, that's amazing. John said that here in the gospel and then he said it somewhere else. No, this is Paul writing. Listen to the language that he uses here. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's word blows me away, but there's more. This is how it is when you get to know God, right? Every time you dig and dig, you think, this is amazing. My mind is being blown. My heart's being encouraged. My faith is being strengthened. Like, it can't get any better than this, and you're wrong, because it always gets better. There's always more to see. In verse 14, John describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. Then in verse 16, John says that it is from this fullness that we receive grace upon grace. We'll talk about what that grace upon grace means in a minute, but right now I just want us to meditate on this language of fullness, right? Uh, This grace and truth that God has for us in Jesus is not something that he has to conjure up from within himself. It's not something that he has to kind of scrape together like when you're broke and you want to go get some... I don't know. Maybe I've been poorer than some of you. <laughs> when you're broken, you want to go to the store and buy something, but you don't have any money. So you start tearing up the couch cushions and looking for change. You ask people, "Hey, you got a dollar I can bum?" You know, like that's not what he's doing with his grace and truth. He's full of it. There's a super abundance of it. He can never exhaust it. It's never going to go away. You think about that language of fullness. You should be thinking about something like a fountain. You know, it's in the very nature of a fountain to overflow. You think about a fire. Think about how heat just naturally bellows out from the belly of the flames. That's just what it does. Think about the sun and the way light just must naturally emanate out from itself. In the same way, these two attributes of God, his grace and his truth, they must necessarily flow out of who he is. God is a God of wrath and grace and truth and love and so much more. And this gracious act of God revealing himself in Jesus, it's something that just flows out of the fullness, out of the superabundance of who he is. Look at the language that John uses at the end of verse 16. Look there, put your eyes on it. He says. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, in our last sermon, we learned that the we here, it doesn't refer to the whole world. It refers to those who belong to Jesus, okay? So what do we Christians receive from the fullness of Jesus? The text says uh, grace upon grace, you should know that this could also be translated as grace, replacing grace. Both of them are good translations. But, but what does that mean? What is John getting at with this phrase? It's pretty important for you to understand because John says that if you're a Christian, that this is what you receive, grace upon grace. Well, this language may bring to mind the imagery of like waves crashing down on the beach, right? Just wave after wave. After wave, you guys ever been to the beach before? The, the waves, it's not like the wave pool at like Point Mallard, right? Like the waves stop sometimes. <laughs> at the beach, the waves never stop, right? That, that, that could be one way you think about what John is saying here. Just God's grace just is just constantly pounding down on us. It, it never runs out. The fountain never goes dry. The supply of God's grace, it never runs low. He, he never gets on E. He never scrapes the bottom of the barrel He never has to refill, and that's true. That's not really what John is trying to say here, though. He's actually making a a more precise theological point. So the meaning of verse 16 is really connected pretty intricately to what John says in verse 17. So let's look there. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, immediately when you see the law being given to Moses, your mind should be drawn back to the text that we just pulled from, Exodus 33. That, that whole situation where God asked to, where Moses asked to see the glory of God, that was when he received the Ten Commandments. That was when he received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Now, this is a bit of a complicated text, verse 17. Uh, and it's, it's one that is often misunderstood And rightfully so, you can come to it uh, and and make an easy mistake. A lot of Christians, when they come to this text, they read it like this: Moses and the law, bad. Jesus, grace and truth, good. Right? They think that that's really what what John is saying here. Moses gave us the law. As Christians who are under grace, we're like, ooh, the law, you know, rules and. Uh, gross, the law is powerless to save, says Galatians, right? Hmm, don't like that very much. And then Jesus, grace, yay, right? It's, it's, yeah, very Parks and Rec. Can we do this? No? Oh, so sorry. But that's not what John is saying here. He's not saying the law is bad. Uh, Without doing a big, long explanation as to why he's not saying that, let me just tell you that no Jewish Christian, and really no Jew, would have ever understood God's law to be bad. They would have understood God's law to be a positive good, a gracious gift from God, wherein He reveals His character to His people, wherein He, he teaches them how they should live and how they should love with one, one another and how they should be holy right? Parents, even though sometimes your kids think that your law is bad, you know that your law isn't bad. And the older your kids get, the more they come to understand, oh, it wasn't bad. My parents were just trying to lead me and to love me and to, you know, all those good things. And yeah, uh, no Jew would have thought the law was bad. And certainly not John coming as a Jew out of that background from his Jewish rabbi, Jesus. That just, it's not a category that they would have had. Okay, well, well, then what is John saying? What is the point? If it's not Moses and the law, bad, Jesus, grace and truth, good, well, that's where you have to understand the phrase grace upon grace, or grace replacing grace. What John is saying is this, okay? So if you kind of got lost there, here's your, here's your opportunity to reorient yourself, okay? Lock in right here. The law was a grace. The law was good. It was a grace to God's people, but there was another grace, an even better grace still to come, and that was the grace of Jesus. So when you understand that this could be translated as grace replacing grace, it actually theologically makes sense. John is saying, yeah, there was this grace called the law, and we know that it's gracious because in Exodus 33 that we just read, where God reveals himself and gives the law to Moses, he says, I will be gracious to whom I am gracious. So God giving his law to people, it was a grace, but it wasn't the ultimate grace. It wasn't the final grace. It wasn't the gospel. Let's just dig into this a little more. Let's do a little, let's do a little compare and contrast here. Okay. Let's contrast Moses and the grace of the law with Jesus And the grace of the gospel. And and when we do that, I think we'll see how we can say, oh, the law, good, gracious, Jesus, even better. So we can start by considering the fact that Moses revealed the law, but Jesus revealed the author of the law, God Himself. We can consider the fact that Moses received the Ten Commandments and uh, by the way, the word commandment, it's not anywhere there in the, in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. The word is, he, he actually receives the 10 words. So we can say Moses received the 10 words from the Lord, and that's good. But Jesus is the word of the Lord. That's what we've been looking at together for several weeks in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus doesn't merely reveal the word, he is the word. We can also think about the fact that, just just picture it, like Moses coming down from the mountain, he's still radiating with the luminescence of the little bit of God's glory that he was able to perceive. Okay, think about that. Now think about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think about what the author of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Moses comes into contact with the glory of God and he glows for a little bit. You know, like those glow sticks, you snap them. Some of you microwave them. I've seen the videos on YouTube. Dangerous, don't do that. Don't recommend it, kids. But, you know, he glows for a little bit and then he just kind of goes back to normal. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Moses asks Can I see your glory? But Jesus doesn't have to ask God to see his glory because he is God's glory. Whenever God bubbles up from within himself and emanates his glory out into the universe, that is Jesus. There's more. Look back at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Now he's talking about Jesus there. He, Jesus, has made him known. According to John, no one has ever seen God. But Jesus, who is, by the way, here described as the only God, he is said to exist eternally at the Father's side. Right? You remember that from chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I hope you you can see the massive difference here between these two. Moses could not even look at God. It was not possible. How much could he possibly reveal of the Father not being able to behold him in the slightest? Not much. He could only reveal as much as God was gracious enough to allow him to reveal. God was like, here's here's some stuff to take back down the mountain. This will be good for a time. But if you can't look at God, how much can you reveal about God? But then there's Jesus. Jesus is God. He has been with the Father, John 17 says, in the fullness of his glory since before the foundations of the world. He has made the Father known. How much can Moses reveal? Not much. How much can Jesus reveal? As much as he so desires. He can reveal all of God. So yes, the grace of God in the law is good. It was needed. The the words of the New Testament call it a schoolmaster. It served a purpose. It was very gracious to train us up to prepare us for the gospel. In the law, we saw we could never do enough, we could never be enough to be right with God. That's necessary. You have to see that about yourself for the gospel to really make sense to you. But the law was also just a shadow of an infinitely better grace that was soon to come and replace it. When our family lived in the jungle town of Udimaguas, we were supremely thankful to finally have electricity. Man, we were pumped. But the electricity would go out so frequently that we always had to keep candles on hand. Now, to a modern American, uh, first of all, like, do we even own candles, right? Maybe like smelly good candles, um, one, one day, the, the power went out in here, and we did a uh, candlelight service. That was really beautiful. But also, the power came on like one minute before we were going to start service, and we were like, turn the lights back off. We're just going to do this by candle. And it was an experience, but it was kind of difficult. You know, you can't read the lyrics. They weren't up on the thing. It was, it was a bit much. For us to do anything by candlelight is awkward. The candle, it just, it just gives out so little light And on top of that, it can go out so easily. And on top of that, you have to worry, make sure the kids don't knock it over and start a fire. Then you have to deal with the wax. Ah, thank God for light bulbs and electricity, right? But when you don't have any power, and when you're in the middle of the jungle, and everything goes black, and you still have to give the baby a bath, you still have to clean the dishes. You'd like to do some reading. The light of a candle, it's actually a tremendous blessing. But when the lights come back on, you don't just turn them off and finish the night by candlelight. When the lights come on, you go, praise God, the lights are on. And then you go and you blow out the candle and you enjoy the gift of the greater light. The first grace is replaced by another, better grace. That's what John is saying here. In Jesus, friends, the lights are all the way on. As great as the candlelight of the law was for a time, the flame of that grace has been replaced by the light of the gospel. And we have truly, in Jesus, received grace upon grace. Now, That's kind of the main heart of this morning's text, but I want to remind everyone the reason why John wrote this gospel. We saw that in week one. Maybe we've forgotten since then, so let's just remind ourselves. In John chapter 20, verse 31, just flip flip on over there with me. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of John's gospel. When John sat down to write this gospel, he didn't do it to like exercise his literary muscles, you know? He didn't do it just because he had a lot of extra free time on his hands and he thought, oh, well, while I'm here on the island of Patmos, you know, might as well, you know, make the best use of my time. He did it because he understood the reality of the gospel. He understood that the entire world is lost, dead in sin, and in great need of a Savior. And he says, I know that Savior, I spent years with that Savior. I saw that savior hung on a cross. I I know that he died. And more amazingly, I know that he rose again from the grave 3 days later. This Jesus gave himself and paid the price for our sins, for the sins of anyone who would repent and turn from their sins and trust in him for salvation. I know this to be a truth. I've seen his resurrected body. Nobody can convince me otherwise what can I do to make my life and that experience count? I'm going to write this down. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to take what I write in this book and to disperse it all over the world for generations. And I'm going to pray that when people sit down and open for him this scroll and read it, I pray that when they do they will see the glory of God in Jesus. And I pray that they will believe. That's the purpose of this book. And that is also the purpose of this prologue. John in this prologue is priming the pump for you to believe. He's saying, do you like Moses want to know God? Do you want to have a relationship with the God of the universe? Are you like Moses? Are you tired of looking at this fallen world and all of its drab and dreariness and its gray and black and white? Do you want to see something glorious, eternally glorious? Do you want to know truth? Do you want to receive grace? If you do, pay very close attention to the Jesus that you find in the pages of this gospel. Because it is only through Jesus that you have any hope to do any of that. It is only through Jesus that we may know and have a relationship with God. But it is also true that it is only through Jesus that we may come to know ourselves. John Calvin once had this to say about self-knowledge. He said, man never attains to a true knowledge of himself until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. What Calvin is saying here is that we can only really, truly know ourselves when we come to know the one who created us. But sin prevents that. Sin prevents us from knowing God as we ought, and when we can't know God, then we can't know ourselves. But in Jesus, God is revealed with pristine clarity. And when we look into Jesus, as we behold the gospel, we can finally begin to see ourselves as we truly are. And man, is that hard. The gospel is just this great jumble of complicated truths that don't immediately make sense to us, but yet hold together with extreme cohesion. One pastor is very fond of saying things, uh, saying something that I think is uh, so profoundly true. I want every member of this church to believe it and to understand it. The gospel says that we are more loved and valuable than we could ever possibly imagine but we are also more sinful than we know. And when you look into the gospel, you see both of those things. Now in America, it's not hard for us to look into the gospel and see that we're loved, to see that we're valuable, to see that we have image and dignity and worth. That's not hard for us to believe. Oh yeah, we got dignity, we're Americans, amen? Fourth of July. But when you look into the gospel and you see the bad part of yourself there? I'm not talking about warts and skin tags. I'm talking about a fundamental spiritual deformity. How do you respond? Have you even seen that? Have you looked close enough into the gospel? Have you looked deeply enough into the face of Jesus in the gospel to see that about yourself? If you haven't, friends, I wonder if you've actually been looking at Jesus at all. I wonder if it's the gospel that you've been peering into or something else masquerading as the gospel. I wonder if it's the God of the Bible that you've been looking at or merely an idol of your own creation that just reaffirms everything that you already think about yourself. That is good. One of the things that we learn about ourselves when we look at Jesus is that we are sinners. As we behold his glory, we begin to comprehend our corruption. I've been having some conversations with some young Christians lately. Like in God's providence, I've had some conversations with like four new Christians over the last couple of weeks. And what's amazing to me about these young Christians is that they've really freshly comprehended their own sin. And it's because they've finally begun to comprehend the reality of God's holiness, right? They are freshly confronted with that fact, and then they're freshly confronted with the reality of their own sin. And one of the hardest things for me to do as a pastor is to like, help people who have been in church their whole lives understand that truth about themselves. It shouldn't be that hard. Why do you think Christ went to the cross He didn't just go to the cross to set a good example for you. He didn't just go to the cross to show you what love looks like, although he does show you what love looks like on the cross. Why do you think he suffered the wrath of God? He had to suffer it because of your sin, because of my sin, because of our sin. The gospel, the very heart of the gospel, communicates this truth about ourselves to us. So, listen carefully to what I'm about to say to you. Before we can receive with joy the glory of God's grace and truth in Jesus, we must first come to see the horror of God's wrath poured out on Jesus on the cross because of our sin. You know, words only matter in context. So the word grace, which means God's unmerited favor, it it doesn't mean anything if we don't understand what it is that we do merit. Hell, death, God's eternal wrath. Because we have committed an infinitely offensive crime against an infinitely offensive God. But when we rightly understand the context... We can come to marvel at the grace of God in Jesus when we've come to despair of our own pitiful condition apart from Jesus. So as we prepare to encounter Jesus in the next 21 chapters of John, I want for you more than anything in the whole world to encounter that grace, that truth of God. I want you to receive all that Jesus has for you But in order to do that, you have to first be honest and tell yourself the truth about who you really are. And if you do, if you do, you will find yourself basking in the glory of Christ, which is full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord God, your love is unending. Your grace is super abundant. Your your truth is life-giving. It sets us free. Lord God, our prayer this morning is that after we have sung these truths and prayed these truths and, and received these truths from your word, that we will leave here freer than we were when we came in because of what you have done for us. Lord, for those who are here this morning who may not know you, God, would you please reveal yourself to them? For those who do know you, but who are still trying to figure out what it looks like to follow you will, you, will you strengthen their walk according to what they have just received from your word? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.